welcome to episode 298 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and those of you who follow me on Facebook know that I was really sick this past weekend, and I'm still trying to get over a cold, so you're going to get an episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's just going to be minus the bells and whistles, but not minus some awesome music. We opened up this episode with the song Bunga Bunga. It's from the EP Surfing After Lunch from the band The Apes Party. You can find them at theapesparty.bandcamp.com. And I was checking, and it turns out the last time I played music from The Apes Party, we had this week's guest on the show. And we were talking about Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I'm talking about Scott Morris, and he's back this week because we are finally, finally getting into our conversation about the fifth and final film in the Planet of the Apes franchise, Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Had a blast. Scott is so much fun to podcast with. I had so much fun listening to and then editing this conversation. So that's going to be happening in this episode. After that, I've got a little bit of feedback from previous guest Paul McComas. Now, if you remember recently, Paul was on the show for an amazing two-part series talking about all things King Kong, comparing King Kong to the original, the 76 remake, and then the 2005 remake. And Paul made a lot of salient points, very salient points, about why King Kong 76 is probably the best of the three films, at least his favorite. Now, after that, we heard from some listeners via feedback. Some people agreed with Paul, some people didn't. And we'll get to that after the conversation with Scott Morris about Battle for the Planet of the Apes. We'll probably end with a little bit more feedback, too. That's coming up right after this. This thing's traveling at 4,000 miles an hour. What is it, this terror that destroys cities? You won't want to look, but you can't help it. You won't believe your eyes, but you'll never forget what they see. You won't want to stay, but you'll be glued to your seat. It's all right, sir. Keep going. I'll catch up with you. I know where that thing came from. It's more important than my wife and baby. It's more important than the whole city. Right now, we've got to destroy it before it destroys us. You can't destroy it. It may have people in it. It's from another planet. We could make contact with them, talk to them. Think how important that would be to science, how important it would be to us. I know how important it is to us right now. I've got to stop you, Dave. I've got to stop The governor of your state. Please, listen carefully. To ensure your safety, I have declared martial law. Run for your life! C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. 
Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Syndrome. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Lou Ayers, as the scientist who discovered that the human brain can survive bodily destruction, can continue to function as a dynamo of living thought, generating a mental power greater than the science of man. Gene Evans, as his assistant, sharing the burden of a terrifying knowledge with ever-increasing fear and hatred. Stop it! Mr. Donovan intends to dominate the international financial scene. And a fatal accident will occur to all who happen to stand in his way. Steve Brody is the reporter who probed too deeply into the beyond and received the full impact of its deadliest forces. Yoakum's death was no accident. Donovan engineered it. And the same thing could happen to us. Donovan could kill us the same way he killed Yoakum. That's right. And it's too dangerous to wait any longer. Surprised? Thanks to Dr. Patrick Corey, Donovan's brain will live, thrive, and continue to grow far beyond the body of Dr. Corey. It is already able to exist in any body, anywhere it will. Knowing this, you now know too much. Nancy Davis as the woman who was compelled to submit to the brain's satanic vibrations of evil. No, Scott, no! Okay, you can go. Never mind. Yes, Scott. Yes. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, Scott. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> I'm excited. We are back to the planet of the apes. Finally. How long ago did we start this journey? Um, In the beginning. No, I, I, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, So we, but we finally made it to the end of the original five films from uh, the early 70s. Yeah, uh, let's see here. I am looking at our archives. April 2015. Wow. when we started. Wow. So the way we've been doing the Planet of the Apes films is uh, I've never seen them. 
I had a big ape size hole in my uh, monster movie dumb, my movie watching history. And I knew Scott really liked this series. So I thought it would be fun to kind of turn the tables on how we do things on 19 or how we did things on 1951 down place and have Scott guide me through these films. He's the veteran. I'm the newbie. And so off and on over the past year and a half, really? It's been – we really should do better next time if we find another <laughs> franchise to not spread it out so far. Um, we've been going through the films, and we are now at the fifth and final film in the original franchise. We may continue to do some Planet of the Apes stuff in the future, but let's get this movie out of the way first. And just to recap before we get into this movie, so far you've enjoyed the previous four movies. Yes. Now, this has been an eye-opening experience for me. I have really – really enjoyed my time with the planet of the apes i am so glad that i've had an opportunity to watch these movies i saw the first one on the big screen which i was very jealous of because i had not at the time now i have since then i have finally got to see it on the big screen yeah because fathom events brought it in yes back in october yep and i went and i saw that screening as well it was just amazing just amazing to see it that way on the big screen i don't think i've actually watched it on the small screen since (laughs) i've only seen it theatrically now i've got that blu-ray box set so i can certainly go back and check it out and i have watched the special features uh it's been a blast i mean it's it's interesting to see what a sci-fi franchise was before star wars and it's just kind of fascinating to me to see where things kind of came from, where things were headed. I am fascinated with earlier eras of Hollywood. And while this is a little bit more recent than traditional Monster Kid Radio stuff, it's still fascinating to see where things were going in the 70s, specifically for me, with Hollywood, with franchises, with how things were going. This was not normal in the 70s to say, okay, this movie did well, let's do a sequel. I mean, that's kind of the standard now. True. And, the reason for that is, at the time, Fox was hurting for money. Uh, as we've mentioned in these previous episodes, they kind of bet on musicals of being the way of the future, and unfortunately, that didn't happen for them. So they put out Planet of the Apes, and it made a bunch of money. So they immediately thought, hey, let's make a sequel so we can make some more money, but let's not throw as much money at it which was a pattern that they continued through all five movies. All five were financially successful, but each film, they spent less and less money. It started recycling sets and costumes and yeah. Yep. And one thing that you mentioned about watching this sci-fi before Star Wars, one vibe that I get strongly uh, off of this series is actually Star Trek, how they mask current social issues in the guise of science fiction, where you don't actually see the stereotyping or the racism or anything like that, but it's there. They're making that same point, just kind of hiding it from you, which uh, is one reason I like this series, and I'm also a Star Trek fan. That's another thing that I really enjoy about 60s and specifically 70s science fiction is you can start to see where they're using science fiction elements as metaphor and as ways to address contemporary issues. I love classic Star Trek for this. I love these Planet of the Apes films for this. Now, these also exist as just stories. Mm -hmm. But if you start to look into it and you really start to think about where some of these things were coming from and what they were trying to say behind the scenes or what was happening in the world at the time, you can see the classism, the racism, 
the prejudice. You can see all these things going on. Vietnam. You can see all this stuff happening behind the scenes and enjoy the movie on a different level. I don't feel you get that with today's science fiction, especially science fiction franchise environment. What's great about these films, if you, especially if you saw them for the first time as a little kid and all of that flew over your head. But you enjoyed the films because of the eight makeup and the and the action and everything. And then you go back years later to watch them again. You see them totally different, which is amazing for a property like this. And I would imagine the same thing happened for original Star Trek. Yep. I mean, you still see things now in original Star Trek that you might not have seen the first time you saw it. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I mean, you can certainly see that as the films progress, they start to – they being the producers start to become aware of, you know, the younger audience, uh, the families that want to see this film. There were some toys that pre- did the toys happen during the films or did that happen yeah. after the TV series? Yeah, there was, there was toys at the time. Okay. So you start to see a little bit of that, but there's still some pretty serious, heavy things happening here. And because it's the seventies, sometimes they get a little highfalutin, uh, like the concept of, time travel as explained by Paul Williams in this film. (laughs) Um, Which is interesting because it's the same concept of describing time travel that we saw in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. The same switching lanes on a freeway. There are some things that happen in this that are interesting callbacks or, or connectors to the previous films in the franchise. Whether it's conversations that are had again or the joke that i made at the very beginning of this no scott no you know (laughs) there are things that are intentionally there and then some things that if you're really paying attention you're going to pick up on this is another thing to kind of keep in mind about this franchise originally this is not the era of vhs or dvd now while the films did get shown on television and i'm sure leading up to the next film in the franchise they would maybe re-release them theatrically or something along those lines it's not like People were watching these movies or consuming these movies the way Scott and I are. We can't sit down and watch it on DVD or Blu-ray. So some of the continuity issues do kind of creep in for modern audiences, but it wasn't enough to take me out of the story overall. Another thing that you're going to see if you watch these now, especially as the films go on, is the first five or ten minutes is basically a recap of where we are in the series. Right. Is another thing that you'll see that they've done. And it was very obvious in this one. Yes. Of this one, you get at least 10 minutes in before you get past the last time on Planet of the Apes and then the opening credits. And now we're into the story. Yeah. uh, Tracy was sort of watching the film with me. And they don't actually say last time on Planet of the Apes like they do. But but it feels like that. But she she was just sort of kind of watching and she just looked up and saw and and then she made that comment. So, yeah, even someone's not following is going to to pick that out, that this is just catching the audience up. Right. And because each film has a different budget and a different kind of sort of aesthetic, these flashback sequences or these scenes from previous films do feel a little bit more disjointed than I'd say like you'd see maybe today if they tried to do that in a film. To sometimes to detriment because you're actually seeing better makeup or better special effects in the flashbacks. Or better production design or a different uh, philosophy or theory of cinematography, the way they lit things. Yep. So they they do feel a little disjointed. When they got around to doing this film, they they knew going into part four they were going to do a part five, didn't they? Yes. That, That was the first time in the series, as they were doing Conquest, they knew there was going to be another film. Like the first one, they had no idea they were going to make a sequel. It was like one and done. And one and, yeah, because no. that's the way Hollywood did. did things. Mm-hmm. 
But then after that, when they did make Beneath, there was always, you know, are we going to make another one or not? So, yeah, at the end of Conquest was the first time they knew for sure they were going to make another one. Likewise, when they started making Battle for the Planet of the Apes, this was the first time they knew that there was not going to be another one. Yeah, this was the definitive end. It was promoted as the final installment. If you look at some of the posters from the time, it's it's mentioned. This is it. The original trailer says this is the the wrap-up of the saga. And part of it's because... They knew it was going to go to TV after that. Yeah. At some point, at some point in the pre-production or production, they knew it was going to TV. Arthur P. Jacobs had sold it, I guess, sold the rights to, was it He Fox? sold the rights back to Fox. Okay. Fox was the distributor. Uh, Arthur P. Jacobs, the producer of all the films, he sold the rights uh, to them, and they decided they were going to take it to TV. I think they were going to capitalize on the fact that kids – really enjoyed this so they were going to have an episodic television show they wouldn't have to worry about being you know very violent or very you know language or anything this was going to be more of a family-friendly television show so they were going to go that route not to get too ahead of things here but have you seen the tv show or episodes of it yes i have and how many seasons did it run just the one or two just the one i think there was 13 episodes total and that's it huh yeah because it didn't do well, budgetary reasons. Yeah. Um, for those of you that have seen a lot of 70s television, the best way I can sort of describe it is The Incredible Hulk. It starts off more astronauts land on the planet of the apes looking for Taylor. They meet up with, uh, he's, he's not Cornelius or Caesar, but it's Roddy McDowell. He, he does come back. I can't remember his name right now. But the three of them basically uh, are being pursued by the gorillas and everything because they are telling people of what really happened in the past. Okay. And, and they're being chased from town to town. And they would get to a town. They would do their teaching. They would maybe help somebody. And then near the end, the gorillas would catch up with them and chase them out of town. <laughs> you said Incredible Hulk. I mean, that, that's... Or A-Team. Or, <laughs> or A-Team. Or Quantum Leap. Or yeah. Route 66. Or any of these... Yep. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the thing, right? Yep. That, that was the storyline uh, for a lot of these films. and Or, I'm sorry, TV shows. So, huh, interesting. You said he doesn't play any of the existing apes, but does he play another ape then, a different name altogether? Yes, and I, w I was trying to remember uh, Roddy, what his name was. He was Galen in the, huh. in the series. I just, uh, thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. But yes, he was an, another chimpanzee. Okay. And he's the only one that returns from any of the films. All right. Huh. Well, again, not that we're going to get too far ahead of ourselves. And I, <laughs> I hate to say it because clearly it takes us a long time to get around to finishing these things here on Monster Kid Radio. But I wouldn't mind taking a look at the TV series. I don't think an episode-by-episode episode breakdown would be good but uh, for you know, uh, one episode of the TV show for one episode of Monster Kid Radio. But it might be fun to go through and watch the series and then maybe Scott and I can come back together and talk briefly about – the series overall. I don't know. We'll see. Yep. I've watched those and the animated series. Now, the animated series is completely different, right? It, yes. It starts, I mean, Nova's back in the mix. I've seen some clips of that on YouTube, and it has that 70s, um, I guess, filmation, mm -hmm. animation style, which has a charm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Star Trek animated series, right? A lot of the artwork would be really cool as like a print or something, just a one scene. But when you try to animate it and, you know, the backgrounds are just slowly moving by as the characters 
very simply walk. It's very of its age. Yeah. Anyway, uh, eventually we'll get to that. I'm sure at some point, maybe in, uh, I don't know, 2025 or something on monster <laughs> kid radio. Any <laughs> 2067, hey, 2067. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm sorry. 2670. That's when to get back to battle of the planet of the apes. That's where we first meet the lawgiver. So, yeah. So, you know, we said that there was that whole introduction. I guess we do have that some original footage for the film. We have the lawgiver starting to give the narration of what had happened in the past. So we do have not just a last time on planet, you know, we do have a little bit of lead up and explanation as to why we're doing this. And it makes sense, you know, in terms of storytelling, it was kind of cool to see the lawgiver speaking. Did you recognize the lawgiver? Uh, I know I should have, and I didn't catch it until after the movie. (laughs) I was looking (laughs) at the credits. So who's the lawgiver, Scott? John Houston. I know, right? <laughs> one of two famous directors that are actors in this film. That's right. And the other one does an episode of Trailers from Hell about this movie. And really? He, I did not know that. Yeah. It's, I watched that this morning before we started recording. And he's he does the typical, oh, it's a terrible movie. Ha, ha, ha. I had fun with it. Which he tends to do with. You're going to say, should we say who this is? Yeah, yeah. So it's John Landis. And I like John Landis a lot. And he always seems like he's having the most fun in the room, you know, to use a phrase I used to use. Uh, he, he looks like he's having a blast. But he also tends to poo-poo some of the lower-budget movies that he's either a fan of or has been involved with. I'm always reminded of a conversation he had with Bob Burns about some of the later films in the Frankenstein series that he thought were – not that great, but Bob Burns is like, but it's got Frankenstein. It's cool. Yeah, but they're not that good, you know. So I'm always kind of – I feel he's got that kind of vibe with Planet of the Apes as well or the Battle of Planet of the Apes. Uh, it's still a fun little episode to, to watch of Trailers from Hell. You get uh, some information and he tells a story about accidentally having dinner or a meal with John Houston and not realizing it. I went and checked that out. I did not know that existed. Not to tip my hand or anything, this is the film that I've seen the least in the series. Sure. But I've always seen, I've always picked out John, Land, I mean, uh, John Houston right away. It's John Landis that I always have the hardest time trying to pick out when I'm watching the film. Well, and his name turns up in the opening credits. And at first you're like, is that really? Yeah. You know, I thought, well, hmm. But then in the trailers from hell, he mentions it. And he also mentions that a lot of his stuff was cut. So you don't see him a whole lot, but he's there. I'll tell you the name of the cast that caught my attention, though, was Austin Stoker. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of Assault on Precinct 13. Oh, I am, too. The original, the John Carpenter version. One of my absolute favorite John Carpenter films. I feel it's terribly, criminally underrated. And he, as Bishop, I think is the name of a character in that. I love that film so much. And to see him turn up in this was just like, yeah, <laughs> I got my guy. That's great. So that was cool to see him turn up in the credits and, and to find out that he's basically our human lead. He is really good. And, and the, but the name that always, every time I see this film that always stands out to me is Paul Williams. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, the guy that wrote the Rainbow Connection. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I always associate Paul Williams with the Muppets. And I know he's done so much more. I'm sure there's people out there saying Phantom of the Paradise, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I associate Paul Williams with the Muppets. So to see his name and it's like, okay, I, I know what he looks like without the makeup. So I'm, I don't know. I seeing him in the eight makeup. I, I just, you know, it's the same thing that I have with Roddy McDowell. I know what they're supposed to look like without the makeup, but yeah, he's in it. 
Yep. And to have him turn up. And then Claude Akins as General Aldo. He was awesome. He's so cool. He is really good, and he plays a jerk really well. Oh, yeah. He's a one-note character, but he's awesome. Yes. Yeah. The, the only problem I have with him is sometimes he's a little hard to understand what he's saying. Yeah. He gets a little animated and great. Which really, if this movie was following the continuity pretty tight, it'd be hard to understand almost everybody but <laughs> Caesar. Because at the end of the previous film, with the exception of Lisa saying no. You're going to say, depending on which version of the previous film you watch. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Oh, Caesar's the only one who can talk yep. or have a conversation. And it's really vague and hard to figure out how much time has passed since Conquest ended and Battle starts. Was a 20-year or 25-year thrown out once? That gets thrown out by the conscience for the guns. I think he says he's been there for 20-something years. Right. Okay. But I, I believe that Man the— Demas, played by Lou Ayers. Volk. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, Rich Handley's Planet of the Apes timeline books mm. places this movie's events right around 2020. Which, if that's correct, that's 30 years since Conquest. So we got four years left, you and me. Pretty much, yes. All right. Well, cool. con- well, he should have ended in Conquest in 91 when the apes would have started to rise. But huh. the one thing that you've got to think of is how did Cornelius teach all of these apes to speak in 30 years? Well, they had Abe the teacher helping them out. Yeah. <laughs> Thou shall not kill Abe, or Abe shall not kill Abe. And a handful of other humans that they kind of keep yeah. as kind of sort of indentured servants. Yeah, the one thing I keep thinking when I watch this film is that Caesar wasn't as one-off as, I mean, yeah, he was born from apes from the future, but maybe there was some other apes that were developing speech since they were around humans so much that we just don't see. You say that you don't see, and it makes me think of one of the issues that I have, not just with this one, but with the previous film as well. And maybe even, well, no, the third film is okay. I think the second, the fourth, and the fifth film do struggle or, or suffer, excuse me, f- due to their lack of budget. Mm-hmm. These are films, it's in the title, Planet of the Apes, but especially in four and five, the fourth and fifth film, it doesn't feel planetary at all. It all seems very confined to one or two locations. It's not very big. So when you say there might have been other apes elsewhere, I would have loved to have seen that. I, I know they couldn't because of the budget, but there's like two towns. <laughs> there's Ape Town and, or Ape City and then the wreckage, and that's yes. it. Well, I, I have a problem with the other word in the title, and that's battle. Yeah. I want to see the battle that was set up at the end of Conquest. Yeah. And again, for budgetary reasons, what we get is more of an assault than a battle. It, it's adequate for what it is, and they did the best they could. True. And like I said, I watched the special features. On, I've watched the special features on all the Blu-rays to kind of learn a little bit more after I watch the film so I don't get it spoiled. And, you know, it's certainly commendable the way they got away with shooting what they did shoot for the battle, for Battle for the Planet of the Apes. They only blew up one treehouse. They shot it from like so many different angles, they could use it over and over and over yep. again. Yeah. So good on them. Smart filmmaking. But it would have been nice to see something bigger and better. And even the poster promises more than what we got. And then if you go, which is out on the internet, it's easy to find. Find Paul Dean, who was the screenwriter for all of the sequels. Find his original script for Battle of the Planet of the Apes. 
and you read through that, and it actually picks up closer to the end of Conquest, except for now in the modern city, the apes are in charge. And we actually see some of the apes leading humans around, humans as their servants. They have a whole new flag that has fire behind Caesar's head. That's the kind of the flag of the city. And we actually do see um, more of the actual battle between humans and uh, the apes. It was Paul Dean was actually going to go for more building off of Caesar's name. Uh, they were going to introduce a Brutus character. It was going to be more of the William Shakespeare, Julius Caesar type story. Which, when I read his script, I kind of want to see that movie. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. I'd love to read the script. In one of the special features on the Blu-ray, you see some clips. They talk about the reason why Paul Dean's involvement wasn't as strong in this film as it was in previous films. And you see some bits here and there. And the one thing that struck out was a dialogue tag indicating that one of the characters, maybe even Caesar himself. It was Caesar. Is, yeah. Yelling like Hitler. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> No, not Caesar. Bad Caesar. No Caesar. No. <laughs> so I'd love to read that. I'd love to read it. Unfortunately, Paul Dean basically was exhausted. He had been working for the past five, six years on nothing but apes. And his doctor actually contacted uh, 20th Century Fox because Dean, he was in L.A. writing and then he went back to his home in England and tried to write. And his doctor in England basically told him, you've got to stop. You're killing yourself. So even in Hollywood, a note from your doctor gets you out of work. <laughs> At least in the 70s, right? Well, I think 20th Century Fox was, you know, they were already wanting to make something that was a little more family family friendly and a little more leading up to the television series, so they weren't too upset that Paul Dean's script wasn't going to be used. And they brought in, was it, it's a couple, isn't it? John and Joyce Corrington? Yes, the uh, writers behind The Omega Man. And a few other things here and there, you know, and, and that's kind of cool, you know, bringing these more future sci-fi 70s stuff, different take on the post-apocalypse. They turned in a more Cain and Abel type story. Mm-hmm. At first, they were actually going to play off of the Aldo character and Caesar kind of battling each other, which a lot of it we do end up seeing in the final draft of the film. But even their version got a supposed rewrite, and that's from Paul Dean coming back. And he's the one that's responsible for how the film ends with the statue that I guess I'm sure that we'll get to eventually. The couple that wrote their version of it, they were going to kind of have an am ambiguous ending where you were going to see apes and kids playing on a playground, but some of them actually fighting. So you didn't know what was going to happen after this film. You get like one moment in this. Yes. You, you see one ape child yank really, really hard the hair <laughs> the uh, of a human child. Yeah. And it, like I saw that and I cringed. I was like, oh, that, that, mm, ouch. <laughs> But I guess at one point they were even going to have some ape-human hybrids running around in that yep. scene as well. And, yeah, they didn't include that. So, yeah, the, the ending is a little ambivalent of what they're trying to tell. Because there is the talk of time travel mm -hmm. and the fact that they knew a television series was coming. So when I watch the film, I still have a hard time understanding. I think Caesar is trying to bring humans and apes together 
to be one because we see that happen a couple of times. In fact, at the end, I mean, we find out that the lawgiver at the beginning, he's teaching the, that group of school kids what happened because it wraps back around to him finishing up the story. And that's where we see the eight pull the pigtails of the little girl. But we don't know, is that trying to show there's going to be fighting between the two races? Is that just kids being kids? It's kind of ambivalent what's going to happen. I mean, when Taylor crash lands uh, in a couple hundred years, what's he going to find now? Is he going to find what he found, or has it all been changed? Right. Are we still in a loop, Are yep. we, or have we changed lanes? It's hard to tell from this, from this story. And, I, you know, I'm okay with that, actually. I'm okay with the open ending. I actually really enjoyed that about the film because it does have that open 70s sci-fi kind of, well, you know, make you kind of think a little bit. I like that. Mm-hmm. Leading up to it, I wish it was a little bit more clear as to some of the things and the motivations. I, I know this is towards the end of the film, but the confrontation between Aldo and Caesar, I was always a little uncomfortable with Caesar being the king you know, being this this ruler. I mean, I, I appreciate that he's, you know, in charge. But I guess I'm a little uncomfortable with the royalty kind of aspect you have there. In in this film in particular, you know, you're the son of a king, so you have to I just I, I cringed a little bit at that. However, it's okay that Caesar can do something that would lead to Aldo's death, even though everybody's upset that Aldo killed an ape. But just because the king forbids you from wearing a crown, that doesn't mean he can't. That's actual line from the film. <laughs> right. That's true. I was a little uncomfortable with how that, and maybe that was a holdover from Dean's approach. Or it could have been included in his rewrite, because right. supposedly he rewrote 90% of the film, even though he didn't get the credit. We're talking about Caesar, and that's another issue that I sort of have with this film, is where did the Caesar that we saw at the end of Conquest go? Well, which Caesar, which end of conquest? Yeah. Even doesn't matter which version. Even the one you know, he's he rises up and and leads the apes. Then he gives that speech and everything. I'm getting to more of the the self assured, the leader, the man who knows what he's going to, or the ape that knows what he's going to do. In this film, especially in the beginning, he seems so wishy washy. He seems so out of character from what we saw at the end of the previous film. He's not sure what to do. He, he, he's got the human as a, a confidant or his, his assistant, but he doesn't really be- take anything that he says for value. He goes to Virgil for, for help, and then he wants to hear what his parents had to say. You know, In that previous film, he seemed more assured of where he was going and what he wanted to do. And he just seems to be sort of neutered at the beginning of this film to me. I agree. I don't know if it's you'd call it a, a slide back in terms of his confidence in what's going on. I don't know if having a child has changed him. I don't know if maybe being forced to rely on humans uh, or not being forced to, but choosing to rely on humans as second-class citizens has somehow weakened his resolve. I'm not sure. But, yeah, there is a definite shift somewhere. There was a shift here. It's something that could have happened to him during some of the wars. Right. Yeah, we just don't know. And, and unfortunately, they don't address that so you're, you're just kind of left of you know why did he change so much i mean we know using real world of what's going on they're wanting to tone it down a little bit but but in terms of the story yeah, yeah it needs to be addressed in the story somewhere in order for it to make sense for me anyway but 
yeah, I don't know. Did the audience accept it that way? I, it'd be interesting to go back and read some original reviews, I think. Yeah, then again, we've which we made mention of, you don't see these films back-to-back like we're seeing them today, so maybe audiences at that time didn't really notice that. Right. They might not have remembered exactly how Caesar was at the end of the previous film. Right. And, and keeping in mind, too, that originally it is a less violent ending for the previous film, too. Uh, right. Theatrically. The theatrical where, ending. Where we can watch now the the more violent ending. So. <laughs> Well, Caesar comes back. Uh, the other character that comes back, well, I guess Lisa's there. Very, very small part. But we also have uh, the return of Culp. Yes. Who was in the first or the previous film, which I, I barely remember him in the fourth film. Yeah, he's one of the um, governor's assistants because there's a line in this film that the governor died when the bomb dropped. Originally, they wanted him back, but uh, the actor wasn't available. There were a handful of people they wanted back. They wanted him back. They wanted... Um, the original McDonald. Right. <laughs> McDonald number one. <laughs> well, that, actually, they're the brothers. This McDonald is the other McDonald's younger brother. I don't remember the name of the actor. Harry Rhodes. Yes. Yeah, they wanted to get him back, but he was... He was either, he's one who was not available, but there were other people who just didn't want to do it. Which, a lot of that could be probably tied to they had less money to offer them. I could see that. But that's okay. We got... Austin Stoker in here, which made me happy. Yeah, he is, he is good. I wish he had a little more expanded role, but yeah, I do like him a lot in this film. He's pretty solid. He and Teacher are really the only two humans of, of any note, really, in the film. I guess there's the one Doctor character, but I don't even know what her name was. And she's only seen when, when Cornelius, Caesar's son Cornelius, got to make sure we say which Cornelius, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, is, is dying. And speaking of, of that character, one of the things that I really like that I had not seen in any of the previous movies, when he goes out and chasing his squirrel, his pet squirrel, which I really like the fact that there's no dogs or cats, he has a pet squirrel. But you see him jumping through the tree the way a chimp would jump through the trees. I never saw that in any of the previous films where the apes were sort of acting like apes would. I appreciate that the actors and actresses, especially the lead actors and actresses in the ape makeup, did their best to have ape mannerisms, walk the way they walked. Right. The way they kind of had their legs hitched out a little bit or hunched over the way they moved. But you're right. It was really cool to see him in the trees mm-hmm. leaping from branch to branch. I thought that was kind of neat and a nice little, oh, Yeah. They really are apes. They're yep. not just, you know, people wearing costumes. And I, I really appreciated that. I don't know who did it, if it was the actor or a stunt, probably a stunt person, right? I don't know which either, but I w- it, it impressed me that they went to that level. Yep. Because we hadn't really seen that before. So that was cool to see. Okay, and I just looked up. <laughs> I went to look up the name of the actor who played Cornelius on the IMTB. And, you know, you have the photo. Yeah, the uh, Bobby Porter, his little tracksuit. Yeah, that's adorable. <laughs> Is that how you look when you go running? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly how I look. <laughs> hey, he went on to work on some pretty big films later. Terminator 2, E.T. And he was a stuntman, so maybe he did do his own stunts. Anyway, you know, you mentioned uh, clearing up which Cornelius you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate that some of the naming conventions include using or reusing some names. You can kind of see 
I mean, that's something you see now, right? My brother's middle name is the name of my father, you know, in real life. And I like that we have some callbacks that Caesar's kid, they named him Cornelius. And I'm assuming in honor of the previous Cornelius. But you also have Aldo, which is a name that came up in the third film. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the history, which I suppose you could say is incorrect now. We've got some continuity issues creeping in because in the third film, they talk about Aldo being the one to rise up. Did we talk about this when we talked about the third film that, or maybe the fourth film, excuse me, because we were talking about the third one having the mention of Aldo, you know, over time, history might have changed. Records might have been lost. That's it. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for, that the records would have changed or or whatever. Just, you know, that's what happens. You know, history evolves as you move forward. You learn less and less. But I'm wondering, now that we're talking about this, and I didn't think about this when we were watching the movie, but we were talking about, you know, are we stuck in the loop? Mm -hmm. Or did we change lanes? Could we have seen I mean could this entire franchise from the second film on or maybe the third film on been the establishment of a new loop altogether for us? Yes. And of course Zira would reference Otto because in her history that's who it was. But we're now in the new loop already. So we don't have the benefit of seeing what the old loop was. We're in the new loop now. That's an interesting take on it. But then I don't know. but then again we have one other name that makes an appearance here that we haven't seen since the second film, Mendez. Yeah. So that might go against your your theory. <laughs> true, <laughs> true. Because you do have Mendez and you do have some cool callbacks, I thought, to the second film. Yes. Which I really appreciated because one of my issues with the third film is that they didn't reference the second film very much. Yeah, other than the fact that they escaped what happened and then it goes off. You don't hear too much about it. No, you don't hear about you don't hear about the astronauts from that uh, experience or that uh, that journey. Yep. When they're being questioned, when the apes are being questioned by the government, they're always asking about Taylor and his crew, Taylor and his two men. They don't mention the woman that died before the movie started. And they don't mention what was his name in the second film. Oh, I can see him. He sort of looked like Heston. Yeah, him. <laughs> The poor man's Taylor. You, you don't you don't mention him at all. Yet he's somebody else who was lost, right? So why didn't he get brought up? So it was cool to see the throwback or the callback to the second film, especially with the bomb. Especially yeah, you're talking about Mendes. Brent. Yeah, Brent. Brad was in my head, but I was like, I can't think. It's not Brad. It's yeah. So it's Brent. But they don't mention Brent. But it was cool to see the Alpha Omega bomb mentioned and some of the things that might have led to what we saw in. The second film where we're going to venerate this thing. We're going to worship this thing to remember where we came from. And they obviously did. I mean, if you watch the director's cut, you actually do see the Alpha and Omega bomb again. It it looks a little different than what you see in the second film. But then again, if you consider that they've been worshiping in that bomb for several hundred years by the time we see it in the second film, maybe they would have blinged it out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. No, it's a shrine, right? Yeah. If you're treating it like some holy object, of course, you're going to gold plate it and you're going to not that that's what they did. But so I do like those elements of the movie. But before we started recording, Scott says to me. If I start getting too negative, you let me know. Because there yeah. are a lot of things that are a little disappointing about this film. And I think we touched on them, the lack of an actual battle. A lot of it can be pulled back to the lack of a budget. Right. As we've mentioned in the previous films, they cut the budget almost in half 
from one to two and then continue to cut ever since. And this was the smallest budget at like $1.6 million. And that's something that happens today even, right? Well, I guess they're kind of reversing that a little bit with the Marvel stuff and maybe even the Star Wars films. Are they increasing budget now? Well, that's interesting you say that because uh, Paul Dean actually made a comment. One of, the re- one of the things he said after he was taken off this project, he said, I've worked on James Bond films where the budget gets increased almost every time a new one comes around. He said, I wasn't used to working under the situation where I got less and less money for doing my work. <laughs> you know, we think of it today with the Marvel movies and the Star Wars movies that more and more money's being thrown at them. I mean, it happened during the James Bond films, too. For a major studio. Now, a lot of minor B movies that were making sequels, yeah, they got less money when sequels were made. But for a major film, I think this was more of the, not the norm, than the norm. Right. Well, and like a lot of the horror franchises of the 80s and the 90s, you know, the future ones would have a lower and lower budget. Right. But yeah, no, you're right. Hmm. And I wonder, the merchandising machine hadn't been really established as a thing yet, right? Star Wars would break the mold or set the mold. Set the mold, yes. You'd have some toys and some merchandise, but I wonder if merchandising was a bigger thing at the time, if more money would have been thrown at it. Well, you've got that, and you've also got the home video market, which didn't exist at this point either. True. The best you had were TV Mm -hmm. events. And they were events because, I mean, I remember growing up when I was a kid, seeing a TV movie was a big deal. Yeah. Because we didn't have VHS or or beta or any of that stuff. It was, you know, it was cool to see something on TV. I can remember, you know, especially films like It's a Wonderful Life. You knew when it was going to be played once a year, and that was the only chance you would have to see it. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of a gimmicky thing when they do that. When is it TBS? Do they still run Christmas Story twenty four seven on Christmas? Yeah, it, it usually starts like at um, five o'clock Christmas Eve and runs until five o'clock Christmas Day. And that's kind of a gimmicky thing now, right? It's not yep. like you have to watch it that way because it's on Blu-ray and you can probably stream it now as well. Or another one of the networks, one of the Fox channels is doing uh, here coming up soon. Uh, and it's not the first time they've done it. Episode one of the Simpsons all the way through the end. is like one giant binge, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a gimmicky thing, but back then it, it was more of an event. It was the thing. I can't tell you how many beta tapes I had growing, you know, when I was in like grade school or junior high or whatever, by the time we got a beta machine, I can't remember when that was that we would record shows or movies off television. Yep. And you could always tell, when we were actually watching the show live while we were recording it, because he would always try to cut the commercials out. <laughs> He'd always try to pause during a commercial. And so you'd get the very beginning of the first commercial and then you would lose like the first second of the movie coming back because you were like trying to press a button right in time. <laughs> and then the ones that we just set the machine up to record as a timer just had the commercials in it anyway. Yeah. The other thing that you have to consider with that is even when VCRs started, most people still couldn't afford the movies because they were 80 and 90 or $100 if you wanted to buy one, buy the film. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time <laughs> working at various video stores. I think so I worked for two video rental shops and two video retail shops, you know, as a, as a younger person. And, yeah, I, I saw the, the videotapes being $80, $90. And when they came out for $19.99 or $29.99, that was a big deal. But uh, So when films like Battle for the Planet of the Apes, when they were f- figuring their budget, they were figuring they were going to have a, you know maybe a month, maybe a month and a half, two-month run at the best at the theater. And that's where they were going to make the money. They didn't plan on you know selling it to home video or, or making a lot of toys or, or even overseas markets. 
wasn't as right. big a deal. If it got on television, you know, great, but that's yep. just a bonus. Yep. So that's when how they were figuring their budgets. As compared to today, I mean, if there's a new Star Wars movie coming out, you can almost bank on, you know, a big overseas market. You can bank on a huge home video market, toys and everything else. All that didn't come into play when they were making these films. It comes into play up to and including the formation or the the, the pre-production of the film itself. You know, we mentioned Marvel. You on Disney Indiana just recently and me and Brenda on an episode of Married with Monsters just recently talked about Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. And one of the character considerations they made in that film was, no, we can't make it Tibetan because uh, we're going to have- people in China are going to want to see this movie. And if we do that, they're not going to want to see it or not be able to see it. Not we're be gonna able to see it is the big, big thing because the Chinese government controls what movies go into China. And if you do something that's going to offend them, your film is not going to even be seen in the second biggest film market in the world. Right. Even if that market or that part of the world might have contributed to a handful of the special effects. True. You know, because that's where a lot of CGI stuff is happening these days is over in Asia, right? Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that those kinds of things are being considered now. I mean, back then, you know, just wasn't a thing. But then, just as a side note about Doctor Strange, go watch the TV show. They don't have a um, Tibetan as the Sorcerer Supreme in the TV show either. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and that was from the 70s. Yeah. Well, and I saw uh, – man, we are way off topic. But I <laughs> saw an interview uh, just yesterday on YouTube, and I forget who, who it was. It might have been with the director, and it might have been with one of the producers. Not Kevin Feige, but uh, is it Feige or Feige? I always thought it was Feige. Uh, Kevin F. Whoever it was um, – <laughs> They were talking about how at one point they might have considered just making the ancient one and Doctor Strange a Chinese person. Mm-hmm. But then that would have upset a number of other people because now you're not recognizing Tibet, saying yep. that Tibet doesn't even exist. And that's uh, while China, certain parts of China be like, yeah, you're right. Big chunk of the other part of the world is not really on board with that. So I don't know. Anyway. So let's make her Celtic. <laughs> yeah, let's make her Celtic. <laughs> and to hear more of our thoughts about Doctor Strange <laughs> – Check out uh, Monster Kid Radio in Disney, Indiana. Uh, Married with Monsters. It's in the feed already. Go check it out. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah. Planet of the Apes. <laughs> the battle for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> this movie needed a Sorcerer Supreme. No, uh, so, Most you know, do. This, so. Yeah, well, yeah, we do. I need a Sorcerer Supreme in my life. <laughs> I need a Taco Supreme. I'm hungry. <laughs> I was trying to make it. I was like, okay, my brain. See, it's earlier for me, so I've only had two cups of coffee, so I'm not like totally up to speed yet. But I'm okay. Supreme, supreme. There's a Taco Bell joke here. Okay, Scott's got it. <laughs> cool. Anyway, uh, I want to talk about the music because I'm a music guy, and I know at this point in almost every conversation on Monster Kid Radio, people start rolling their eyes when I say I'm a film score geek. I gotta talk about it. Uh, Leonard Rosenman did the music here. This is not the first time he's been involved in this franchise. He also did the music on uh, at least one other film, and he's got a Disney connection. Uh, Scott, do you know what that Disney connection is? Uh, no, I don't. He did the music for Body Wars. Really? Yeah. Very cool. Body Wars was what, a little short kind of? It's a motion simulator ride that used to exist in Epcot, and I can actually, we talked about another link I could make to it. Leonard uh, Nimoy directed it. Yeah. <laughs> and Leonard Rosamond did the music for Star Trek Four, Save the Whales. There you go. So, But I like his music. I mean, it's it's functional at times, like RoboCop 2. is like, well, okay, whatever. It's not very rem- memorable. But 
you know, Star Trek Four is probably the least Star Trek of the Star Trek music mm-hmm. uh, from the films anyway, but it's still memorable and has a vibe. And I, I thought his music in this film was adequate and did what it needed to do. I think it was mostly highlighted in the opening credit sequence that ran on for a good 10 minutes. Speaking of his score, yeah, adequate is is about as far as I would go. I mean, it's yeah. it's nothing like the the beginning of Escape from the Planet of the Apes and the um, the music no. that you have there, which is amazing. Or even the first Planet of the Apes, which is nearly avant-garde for what yes. it is. Which, I mean, it's just fantastic. The music for Battle goes along with the way the film was shot at times gives me a, a very strong TV feel. I mean, good TV where there's, mm-hmm. they've got, they've got a, a decent budget, but a TV feel in the Which music and, and some of the cinematography. I mean, I suspect he wasn't given as much money or maybe even as much time. Right. To produce the score for this. Also, he had done a lot of television in the sixties and seventies, you know, national geographic documentaries under to me, Jacques Cousteau stuff. <laughs> Did a lot of, you said uh, under siege, and I thought Jacques Cousteau in, uh, in an under siege movie. <laughs> I think we just came up with our next project, Scott. <laughs> Jacques Cousteau, under siege. <laughs> under siege three. <laughs> now you did a lot of television is what I'm trying to say. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. But it does have that TV feel. It certainly does. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's probably not as much time, maybe not as big a, a orchestra. If he worked with an orchestra, oh, I'm sure he worked with an orchestra since the 70s. You know, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's just the vibe that I got. A lot about this movie feels small and TV-ish. And, you know, maybe that was a, a conscious decision, too. Not just a budgetary thing, but they knew they were going to go to TV. So let's make the transition as easy as possible. A lot of the things that they created for this film might have been reused for the television series as well. I don't know that for a fact, but it could be. Overall, I'm glad I watched it. I, I don't want people to think that we didn't enjoy this experience, oh. specifically me, because this is a first time viewing for me. I don't know if I'm going to go back and watch it as much as I'll go back and watch the other films. As I told Derek before we recorded, I love the whole series. But having said that, this is the film that I've seen the least. And I will go back and watch, you know, the first four many times before I'll watch this one. But I I do watch this film. I do enjoy it for what it is. It's just personally for me, I'm a little disappointed that we don't get what what I feel we were set up for at the end of Conquest. I'd love to go back and watch or read the script, the original script. It'd be amazing. You said it's online? If you go to P-O-T-A, Planet of the Apes dot g-o-a-t-l-e-y goatly dot com slash scripts dot html you'll find uh, scripts uh, several drafts for pretty much all of the the films huh. and there's even scripts for the television series run it by me one more time it is p-o-t-a dot g-o-a-t-l-e-y dot com slash scripts dot html it's Hunter's Planet of the Scripts Archive. Hunter's Planet of the Apes Archive. Yeah, I'll check yeah. this out. Wow, there's a lot of stuff on here. Yeah, the whole site is a very good site for Planet of the Apes. He's got a whole bunch of uh, different pictures, collectibles, uh, information about the comics. Planet of the Apes, a guide and commentary for teachers and students pursuing the study of man. 
a study guide <laughs> by a PhD about, oh, man. Yeah. I just found a website to get lost in. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff here. This is this is a site that I've had bookmarked for a long time. So Planet of the Men? Really? Is that a screenplay? I believe it is. Holy cats. Wow. <laughs> This is great, Scott. Why have you not told this to me before? <laughs> because there's a lot of things like this that I didn't want you to start getting lost in because you would learn about the other movies before you saw them. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Good point. I did try to come to this as as fresh, as unaped as possible. And I'm glad I did. It was really fun to just have these experiences. I, I don't think any was nearly as shocking as the end of the second film. When the blue dot just went out, uh, no, no clue that was coming. And and where do we go from there? <laughs> yeah, like huh? But there's three more movies. I don't understand. As they say in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't destroy the Earth in Chapter One. You might need it later. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this is amazing. Now I did stumble across like the makeup test that they did, mm-hmm. and I think I, I shared that with you, didn't yep. I? Uh, which is a slightly different makeup in some cases and the story is completely different, but it's like this short little 10, 15 minute bit with Charlton Heston where they were trying to uh, get the okay to move, move forward on the film anyway, which was kind of neat to see, but wow, look at all this stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm still going to get lost in all this. I'm trying to remember if this is the site where I found uh, PDFs of all, yeah, the press books are here. Okay. All the, uh, for the, all the films and, and stuff. And there's also um, uh, stuff from different magazines about Planet of the Apes and everything. It's all on this website. Oh, here's a picture of a Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade float, Planet <laughs> of the Apes. And I found this on a page for Planet of the Apes, a musical trip. Yep. <laughs> Which then again, I go into the, the Simpsons episode for Planet of the Apes, the musical. I love every ape from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, there is a track on the <laughs> album called Jungle Fever. Yep. <laughs> Wait till you listen to it. <laughs> wow. This how, is awesome. How about people sure do make funny noises? <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Now, the apes thing we're not done like i said i, I do want to talk about the, the tv series at some point we got the tv series we've got the animated series and then we've got the reboots <sighs> which in all honesty i've seen the tim burton one but i have not seen any of the other ones so i've only seen the first of the new films and it was okay i thought it was much better than the tim burton film Ah, uh, yeah yeah the, the odd thing was when we, when derek and i first talked about doing this, we were going to go off and do uh, the other films at one point. So that's why I've kind of sat on not watching them. Yeah. And you know, we may still, we may still, um, let's, let's not set ourselves up for failure by saying this is when, <laughs> um, but let's, if we're going to do it, let's not wait forever either. I would like to read more of the planet of the Apes stuff that's out there. I mean, there were comic books, um, there's books, there, there's novels, yep. the star Trek planet of the apes comic book crossover. I'd like to take a look at. Yeah, I would too. You know, I'd like to kind of learn a little bit more about this stuff. And what about Army of the Apes, Scott? Army of the Apes? Army of the Apes. 
Japanese science fiction TV show. <laughs> I have not seen that. Really? Because it was covered on MST3K twice. Uh, no, that was... Oh, Time of the Apes. Time of the me. Apes, yes. That, yes. Okay. That was on one uh, their KTMA episodes, and then they brought it back... Season three. It's a, a, a similar story, but it, it is different. No, I have seen that. I've seen, uh, the misted version, yes. Yeah. Both, both versions. So Army of the Apes, and then there was also... Oh, just Sandy Frank brought it over to the U.S., by the way. Well, well, good for him. <laughs> yeah. Sandy Frank. <laughs> anyway, I, I got stuck. I started hearing the Gamera's full of meat song on my head. Because um, <laughs> he's the one that brought Gamera over, right? Y- yes, he did. Okay. So there's that. There's also the kind of sort of – they tried really, really, really hard to make – the Return of the Blind Dead film, a Planet of the Apes film at one point. Have you seen any of that or heard about that? Tombs of Blind Dead. Excuse me, I heard your Dead. reviews on it on your f- former show a long time ago. That's as close as I ever got to it. The very, very beginning of the movie, they say that the ape stuff happened in the humanity's past. So the, uh, the Knights Templar that are running around the Tombs of Blind Dead are actually undead apes. <laughs> it's not people. <laughs> It's it's a, st- a big stretch, but the apes were kind of big, so they were trying real hard to tie it in. And what was the comic that you sent me not too long ago? Planet of the Apes and an, uh, an 80s sci-fi movie, which I'm blanking on. Oh, that's right. With the reptilian aliens that were living. Alien Nation. Alien Nation, yes. Thank you. Which is a film I quite enjoy, and I did not know there was a Planet of the Apes comic crossover for that. <laughs> How does that even happen? It was called Ape Nation. <laughs> how I don't I don't get that I don't I don't get that at all. <laughs> uh, but that was by who? Adventure Comics. The worlds of Planet of the Apes and Alien Nation are combined into one deadly title. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of ape stuff out there that that I'm not familiar with that I I do want to to look at. I know a lot of as we've been going through this, you've sent me stuff that you found, and I found some stuff that. I'm like, I do want to read this, I do, but I don't want to, since we're going through this, I don't want to muddle myself with the other stuff right now. So, Right. I mean, it's the Star Trek stuff that I really want to read. Yeah, I do too. I do too. When I was looking up that Ape Nation comic book, I stumbled across an image from one of the covers, and it's uh, the gorillas and one of the classic Star Trek Klingons mm-hmm. hanging out. And that just is a cool <laughs> image. Yep. I could definitely see that happening, too. The, the primate directive is what they call it. <laughs> I'd love to see that. I'd love to read that. And I think I will. Now that I've seen the five films, I think I'm okay with moving on to those, yep. perhaps. Yep. I think, I think I'm going to. Because Gold Key did a Beneath the Planet of the Apes comic book adaptation that included an ape protest poster in it. <laughs> That'd be cool to check out. We can totally get lost in this. I do like that there seems to be some... Rippling, I suppose, some some resonance with the series still today. And not just with the remakes. I mean, we have the Planet of the Apes and uh, Star Trek crossover. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's one that Dark Horse did. Tarzan on Planet of the Apes. So, I mean, we do see some, wow. <laughs> we, we do see some resonance here with the Planet of the Apes stuff. I think it's an important franchise to really you know, be aware of and respect. I don't know if I need to go out and buy all the old toys and things like that. But, you know, for what it was... I think I said this at the very beginning. This was the franchise before the franchise, right? Oh, yeah. This this was the thing that people watched. This was the stuff that kids would wait to show up on TV 
I can totally see myself if I was a kid of the 70s, more of a kid than a kid of the 80s, I would have totally been wrapped up in Planet of the Apes Mania. Totally. From when I was born, I just missed it because I'm, I, I believe Planet of the Apes came out in 68 and so did I. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have been totally into it. And one of the things that I like to do is I do go to a lot of antique malls and toy conventions and stuff. And the ape stuff is usually pretty expensive if you run across any of the original stuff. Which, on the one hand, I understand because it probably wasn't nearly as mass produced. There, was, yeah. there wasn't as much of it. But it all looked a little cheap to me based on what I've seen. And one of the uh, playsets looks like the Ewok Village from Return oh, of the Very Jedi. much so. Looks just <laughs> like the Ewok Village playset. Which is the one piece that I had a chance to buy at a toy show that I walked around for a good hour, hour and a half deciding whether to buy it or not, and then I didn't. And yeah. sometimes I kick myself because I would have liked to have had it. What would you have done with it? I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> the Planet of the Apes adventure set. Planet of the Apes live show in the UK. <laughs> See the apes live at these rodeos now touring the country. <laughs> Wow. See Urko and his gorillas, Galen and the astronauts reenact scenes from the Apes series. See the gunfights, Broncos, and stuntmen. Oh, I would have been there. I would have been there. Oh, yeah. Just to see gorillas riding horses <laughs> in real life. I would have seen that. Oh, this is great. Yeah, you know what? I grew up loving Star Wars. I really did. I mean, I did this series on Disney Indiana. Was it last year? Yes, about this time last year. Star Wars and D, you know, just kind of chronicling my history with Star Wars. And I loved it. I love Star Wars. And I still have a healthy respect for it. I'm not the kind of guy that needs to go out and buy all the toys these days. I mean, I used to be, but I could totally see myself getting wrapped up in the Planet of the Apes this way. I don't need the toys, so I don't have room for them. So. Yeah. Uh, back on that original Hunter's Planet of the Apes uh, website, uh, if you go under audiovisual, Mm -hmm. There is a BBC radio reading of, of Planet of the Apes. The Book of Bedtime series. Yep. Wow. <laughs> oh, man, Scott, this is awesome. I do have a couple of issues of a fanzine that was just recently done of, uh, for Planet of the Apes that I've, I have downloaded because they were available for download for free uh -huh. uh, through the person who created it. But I haven't read them because I didn't want to spoil you know, the films. This has been a blast, though, man. It really has. I feel like I'm a better person for having watched the Apes movies. <laughs> was there anything when we got into this to begin with? Was there anything that you were just like itching to? I mean, I can't wait for Derek to see this or whatever. Well, obviously the end of the first one, which I knew you already knew. Right. And the end of the second one, which was not near as well known, you know, blowing up the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, I, I was curious to see how, what you would think of that. And then of course the entire last, uh, 15, 20 minutes of the third movie, Escape, with the, the killing of the, the infant and everything. I was, I was curious to see what you would think of that. They didn't shy away from that kind of stuff, did they? they no. Killed the, they killed the baby in three. They killed Cornelius in five, which I was a little surprised by. Mm-hmm. Really surprised by that. Some of the things that they did, I mean, like you said, they didn't shy away from things. Plus the whole Escape, how it changes 180 in its feeling in that last 20 minutes of the film. Right. I mean, it's fun. Mm -hmm. The music's fun. I love the music in that. That's probably my favorite for just kicking back and listening to a film score to enjoy. That's the one for me. Yeah. I think the first one is probably the most impressive and most groundbreaking, but that film score from the third film is great. But even the music changes tone. Yep. Towards the end. 
And then, of course, Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> uh, he's just one sexy. Now, yeah. <laughs> I, I really, really hope that if they continue the new films, the remakes and all that, that yep. they have that character, but they cast Benedict Cumberbatch as our <laughs> I could see that. I definitely could see that. <laughs> Make more sense than having him play con, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> um, I think those are probably the most mind blowing. I think the end of part two was probably the most mind blowing yeah. bit for me, you know, going through the, the three fil- or the five films. That was the hardest thing for me not to tell you about before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause I knew you knew the, the statue of Liberty. I knew you knew that. Cause Anybody that's done anything with science fiction for years knows that, even if you've well, never seen the film. It's on the poster. It's on the cover. I mean, yeah. come on. But the second one is, the end of the second is not as well known. And when, when we did the first movie, and we were talking about the iconic ending and everything, in the back of my mind, I'm, <laughs> the end of the second one was right there. And I was like fighting in my mind, like, you can't say anything about that. <laughs> yeah. It took a lot of willpower to not immediately put in the next movie. <laughs> when I got to I was like, what? No. Yeah, it took a ton of willpower to not do that because that, that was pretty, yeah. So going through the movies yourself, is there anything that you noticed for the first time or, or changed for you watching them? It's a good question. One of the things that I've decided that I want to do and that I kind of wish a place like the art craft would do because I would love to sit down and watch them all back to back. That'd now. be a blast. Even the fifth one, huh? Even the fifth one, just to yeah. to really have everything immediate in my mind to see if I could put together all. Because this time, watching them a little more critically, the time inconsistency stood out a little bit more. And I'd like to watch them back to back to see if I could come up with theories or ideas in my mind to explain some of them, if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. But it, yeah. it would be fun to see them as a, a big marathon. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be a blast. The Revival Theater that I go to, I mentioned the Art Craft, uh, they have a sign-up sheet of films that you would like to see every time I go there. Planet of the yeah. Apes series, I write in there every single time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> They've never done it, but I write it there every time. <laughs> That'd be cool to do. You know, maybe if there's another Planet of the Apes remake film, you know, a newer one, it'd be a good time to, to pitch it so that, you know, it's kind of in the air, you know? Yep. That'd be fun. That'd be fun to sit down and do all five of them in a theater. Yep. And hope the concession stand is still selling bananas. <laughs> I hate bananas. I hate bananas. <laughs> that would be a treat. I love that, you know, it's still the classics, the original, are still in the pop culture. You know, when I went to that con and I saw the guy walking around in the Planet of the Apes costume. With the running for president sign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to see it still out there, the original stuff it was and, cool. And, and seeing crossover type stuff, when I met the, the people from the, the 501st here in Indiana, that yeah. their wives dress up as the guerrilla soldiers, but in um, stormtrooper outfits. Which is a terrifying concept. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but I, overall, I am so glad that you liked this series. I knew going in that you're a big fan of older films. And stuff like Star Wars and stuff, but I didn't know honestly what you would think of these films. I was a little nervous that you wouldn't like them because I like them so much and that we wouldn't be able to be friends anymore or something like that, but I'm glad that didn't happen. 
we have to break up because you didn't like Cornelius. Thing. <laughs> Man, if we can get through however many years we did of down place, <laughs> because I've been in your shoes in that spot and it has happened to where there's a movie that I've absolutely loved. And you're like, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and you know, I just have to be at peace and knowing that my friend Scott is wrong. But now this was, this was a good series to watch. I really enjoyed it. I feel like I filled in a massive hole in my background of pop culture and science fiction. I, I wish there was more. I would love to continue this journey and, and I'll watch the TV series and we'll talk off mic on how we want to do that, how we want to tackle it. If we want to tackle it here on MKR in some way, but it's been a blast. And I want to thank you for you know being my guide and welcome me through all this, letting you be the Caesar to my McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, could you do a massive fan edit of all five films, starting with the lawgiver sequence from the very beginning of the final film and then using the other five films instead of doing flashbacks, just putting them all in order somehow, messing with the time? I don't know. I don't that know. That sounds like a big project and a big headache. Yes, it does. <laughs> anyway, this was a blast. This was a treat. So thanks, Scott. This yeah. was awesome. I'm, I'm, I am so glad that you liked it. And uh, General Ursus forever. <laughs> still your boy, huh? He's still my boy. <laughs> Who wins? Who wins? Aldo or Ursus? Oh, in Ursus in a heartbeat. In a fight? Really? In a yeah. fight? Ursus is smarter. Oh, that's true. Aldo's just like, guns. Yeah. Guns are power. Guns power. power. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think Ursus would be more of a tactician, so. Yeah. He's a smarter dude. He's got a cooler hat. <laughs> he's got a hat. It's, he's true. He's got a hat. <laughs> yeah. They cut the budget so much, nobody has hats in this film. <laughs> Oh, man. Good times. All right. So, listeners, Scott can be found at Disney Indiana at DisneyIndiana.com every other week, knocking it out with his wife, Tracy, talking about Disney stuff. We've got Doctor Strange who just came out. We've got Moana coming up and Rogue One, a Star Wars story, all coming up. He doesn't just do the Disney, you know, the traditional Disney stuff. They talk about the Pixar. They talk about the Star Wars. They talk about the Marvel. Anything the mouse owns, we are free to talk about. And, you know, I mentioned Down Place. Um, Scott and I still haven't come to a decision about what's happening with 1951 Down Place. But the old episodes are at 1951downplace.com. That's true. So you can check that out as well and hear the roles reversed. (laughs) (laughs) Scott hasn't watched the Hammer films, but I have. So we will have Scott back on the show in the future. We have talked with him off mic about talking about a movie, another movie from the 70s. I hear the engine revving up now. You want to mention it? (laughs) We can. The car. <laughs> well, long before Christine. Yes. <laughs> long before Maximum Overdrive. Oh, boy. <laughs> Watched the trailer for Maximum Overdrive the other day with Brenda. Wow. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> Stephen King, man. That was, does he even remember any of that He time? was on some good stuff at that point. He was on a lot of stuff at the time. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about the car. Also, uh, Scott and I, we need to talk about scheduling a time for you and I to talk about matinee. Wow, we're going up to the 80s. <laughs> I thought it came out in the 90s. And the, was it the 90s? I couldn't remember uh, if it was late. Anyway, it's about the 60s. Yes, yeah, true, it is. We're going to talk about matinee with friend of the show, Justin Giallo. We want to do a, I want to do a roundtable with that. So we need to talk about making that happen as well. And, of and course, listeners will find probably very odd why I'm a big fan of that film. Not what most people would think. You don't dislike those elements. No, I don't. But what drew you to the film. But what drew me to the film. Yes. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) Let's just leave it hanging there. That's a good good tease. (laughs) That's a good tease, yeah. 
I'm trying to come up with something funny to say there, but I got nothing. So let's just wrap up. Scott, thank you for being on the show. And thanks for having me back. And uh, thanks for um, going through the forbidden city or forbidden areas with me. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> thanks uh, for being forbidden with me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I've had so much fun going through the Planet of the Apes films with Scott. Like I said in the conversation, I regret it taking so long to get through all the movies. But, you know, it was really worth it. The journey has been just an exciting one for me. When I look back at all the things that I've done over almost 300 episodes of Monster Kid Radio, one of my absolute favorite things is visiting these films with my friend Scott. This was a treat. Scott, thank you. Now, Scott and I have communicated plenty off mic about Planet of the Apes. Yes, we are going to talk about the TV series, the original TV series. Are we going to talk about the cartoon? I, I don't know. But the TV series for sure. And, and I don't think I've run this by Scott, but I can't imagine he's going to not want to be involved. I want to continue talking about Planet of the Apes here on the show. I think Planet of the Apes and its franchise has a home here on MKR. So next year, we're going to have at least one episode devoted to a roundtable conversation about the original Planet of the Apes films. Maybe branch it out a little bit, talk about the series, the spin, you know, whatever. We'll talk about Planet of the Apes. I want Scott there, so I'm going to invite Scott, I'm going to invite Tracy, and I know there are a number of other guests that have been on Monster Kid Radio, other friends of the show who haven't been on Monster Kid Radio, that are interested in Planet of the Apes. When that roundtable happens, I'm going to put the call out to them too. So stay tuned, that's coming next year on Monster Kid Radio. Thanks again, Scott. Paramount Pictures presents Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. The only man alive, feared by the walking dead, born the night creatures and the black moon. Captain Kronos is here! Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, all shot. In color, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parents. Now scream! Evil has visited the Earth in many forms. Now it returns as the car. There was no driver in the car. Possessed. I know why he didn't go into the cemetery. The ground was hallowed. Who knows what it wants? They all know nothing can stop. The car. This is Wade. We can't let him through no matter what. Stay in close. You have to stop. There's nowhere to turn. The car, he's in here. Nowhere to hide. No way to stop the car. I, I think I hear the engine of that car. It's around here somewhere. Wait, I'm scared. No, I promise you I won't go out. Tell me what to do, baby. I, I, uh, uh. 
evil force drives the car. Charlton Heston is the Omega Man. The Omega Man. More than fantasy. Maybe the future. Rated GP. Hi, this is Joshua Kennedy, director of Attack of the Octopus People, Dracula AD 2015, and the Vesuvius Experiment. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio. Enjoy. All right, so like I said, a couple of weeks ago, we had a two-part series talking about King Kong with Paul McComas. Paul's a friend of Monster Kid Radio. He's been a longtime friend of the show. He loves Lon Chaney, but it turns out he also loves King Kong 76. And he made a lot of really good points as to why this is such a good film. And then the week after those episodes, we got a number of pieces of feedback from people who either agreed or disagreed. And one of those people that didn't necessarily buy that 76 is a great film is Stephen E. Sullivan. Now, Steve is also a longtime friend of the show. In fact, Steve is the man who introduced me to Paul. Listen to last week's episode for his voicemails about his thoughts about King Kong. And then come back here, because Paul's got a response. Please forgive my head cold and the voice uh, that results therefrom. This is Paul McComas, and I think I caught the cold, capital T, capital C, from you, Derek, over the phone. Anyway, I do want to, for our Kong pair and Kong trust, Kong-versation with Kong-mentary and deconstruction. <clears throat> Sorry for that, too. I have two points. Uh, one of them brief, the other maybe not so. In reply to my dear friend and sometime collaborator Steve Sullivan and his three-part, three-phone call, hyper-extended rebuttal to my ape-analysis. Uh, yes, ape-analysis, I said it. Number one, Steve said, quote, There's already a Beauty and the Beast film. It's called Beauty and the Beast. Unquote. Steve, a film's title and its theme obviously aren't always identical. Much of Kong 33 including crucially the last line spoken, indicates that Beauty and the Beast was a major intended theme. And I'll grant that Kong 33 trumps Kong 76 film, but 76 is chiefly a tragic romance, and on that count, it wipes the floor with both other versions, the um, Kong Blonde Bond in 2005 being a purely platonic friendship. So it depends on what you're looking for from a Kong film. For me, as in most any narrative, the key is the primary relationship. The Kong slash blonde pairing is strictly one way. He lusts and she just screams with no evolution, if you will, of the relationship. In the 76, largely thanks to Jessica Lange's performance, Rick Baker's too, frankly, through the mask and the contact lenses, uh, Lorenzo Semple's script, John Gillerman's direction, and John Barry's lush and romantic really perfect musical score, thanks to these things and more. A touching and tragic relationship is there, and it's sort of a beautiful romance, an unlikely one, but beautiful. And, Steve, no dinosaurs required. I know, Derek, you made the same point about 76, that that would have been a waste of time, because that's not what the film's about, not what it's developing. My second point, much briefer, is the life-size mechanical Kong, yes, Steve, it was constructed for use in Kong 76, but it proved unsuccessful, as you said, and was all but abandoned. But to cite this fact, as you did, Steve, as a weakness of the film, is patently absurd. Yes, absurd. It's a production note, not a salient point about the finished piece. And with that, I grab the nearest blonde, hold her under a waterfall, blow dry her with my breath, 
and sign off. Paul, I'm sorry I got you sick. I hope it wasn't me. You know, I ugh. being sick this time of year is awful. And Steve, if you want to respond, of, of course you've got a forum here on Monster Kid Radio to do so. I told Paul in an email earlier today that he's converted me. I really do think King Kong 76 is a really, really good movie. When I had watched it for the show, it was the first time I'd watched it in a long time. I remember watching it as a kid, and that's about it. I'm still thinking about that film, at least a month removed now from having watched it for the show. I'm still thinking about it. It's still in my head. I'm still thinking about different pieces and parts, and not necessarily the production part, which is important. But whether or not that giant mechanical Kong worked, well... It doesn't matter. I mean, that's just a production thing. And sure, I would have loved to have seen it. But the themes, the things that are explored, everything here, it's just fascinating to me. I, again, thank Paul for the opportunity to have watched this film. And, you know, Steve, I appreciate your comments, too. And like I said, if you have a response, please feel free to call in. Everybody else wants to call in. Some more thoughts on the 1976 King Kong? Well, you're always welcome. We also got a bit of feedback via Facebook. This is from the horror host, Lord Blood Raw, who is somebody that I've been chasing and he's been chasing me to get him on the show. You know what? Here's my commitment to you, Lord Blood Raw. And listeners, I promise to have you on the show next year. It's going to happen. Anyway, he sent me a message about last week's episode. And one of the things we talked about in last week's episode with Stephen E. Sullivan, coincidentally, is what Universal might be doing with the Universal Monster reboot or their shared universe because the trailer for The Mummy had come out. Ultimately, it came down to Steve and I being cautiously optimistic about the whole thing. I still have a few more concerns, I think. Than... Anyway, here's the response from Lord Bloodraw. Hi, Derek. Heard the episode on The New Mummy. I have to admit I'm a lot less optimistic about it. By the way, just watch the trailer again, and it's a cloud of bats that brings the plane down. Not in the shape of a fist, but still, pretty sure it's Dracula's doing. Not optimistic. So, I don't think Steve and I actually said it was bats. But yeah, that's what it is. It's bats coming in to the window that brings that plane down. And if the trailer is to be believed, because, you know, trailers can be cut specific ways. If the trailer is to be believed, the plane is holding the mummy and Tom Cruise and a few other characters. And then it starts coming down. So, what if this isn't what starts the movie off? What if this is how the movie ends? And it's the tie-in to have a Dracula character turn up later in the shared universe. You know, this is the only time we see the bats or whatever. It's kind of like the stinger or I don't know the, the cliff, not really a cliffhanger, but I don't know. I know there's a lot of concern going into this thing. I'm very concerned as well. We'll see, man. We'll see. So that brings us to the end of this episode of monster kid radio. Thanks for putting up with my subpar voice. I hope you enjoyed the show despite my being sick and at least one other listener being sick. Sorry again, Paul. I, you know, I actually, I know Scott's been battling some things. He's on the upswing. Just it's the time of year where people get sick and it's the time of year where people can't afford to get sick. So I hope the monster kid radio audience is as healthy as possible as we move in to this holiday season. So there's a couple of bits of business I want to get to before we bring the show to an end. First of all, by the time this goes out, friend of the show, Joshua Kennedy has had his premiere screening of his final film school film, the alpha Omega man, the place, New York city, the time, the not-too-distant future. The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. Discovered check. How does that grab you, Chuck? 
the last man on Earth always carries. An automatic weapon. The last man on Earth is hunting. The last man on Earth is not alone. Joshua Kennedy is Robert Neville. Laura Loreano as Lisa Cash. And Cat Kennedy is Matthias. Is this not the place where all the users of the wheel were taught their evil ways? Yes. Dog! Search the corridors! Follow me! Now come on, man, get on the bike. It's pink. Well, I meant to get a motorcycle, but the word on the street is you haven't got your license. Yes, that's true. You're the last man on Earth. Yes, and it pays to be careful. Shut up, man, and get on the bike. The Alpha Omega Man, a gooey film production. He's running out of time, but he's got all the time in the world. The Alpha Omega Man. The last Joshua Kennedy Pace University production. The Alpha Omega Man. Audiences I'm going to have Josh on the show again in the near future. I know he's been busy because this is his final project, his, his big deal, his last hurrah, and I didn't want to take up any time from that because he's a dear friend of the show and a friend of mine. I've been following his exploits on Facebook, on his Facebook page, Joshua Kennedy, Man of the Arts, and I can't wait to see how the Alpha Omega Man turned out. And I'm sure we're going to talk all about the production of it when I have him on the show Probably in January, depending on scheduling and all that. I haven't talked to him about that yet, so fingers crossed. We'll we'll try to make it happen. The second thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, it seems like I've been doing a lot of movies from the 70s, things that are not traditionally in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. When I launched Monster Kid Radio, my thought was, we're going to do nothing but the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic blah, blah, blah. And in my mind, the classic horror, classic sci-fi, classic monster era ends in 1968 because that's when Night of the Living Dead came out. With Night of the Living Dead, it kind of changed things. It was a paradigm shift in horror movies, in monster movies, in low-budget cinema, in regional cinema. It just changed so much. So what I wanted to do was try to stay in the pre-1968 era of films. And I feel like we've done a really good job with that. I know maybe we spend a lot of time in the 1950s, but let's face it, the 1950s produced the most monster movies. Anyway... I don't want people to worry. At one point, I was going to make December a theme month. I was going to call it 70s December, and we were going to do nothing but 1970s monster movies. What actually happened was real life got in the way. The theme months didn't work out. I'm probably not going to try to do theme months anymore because both times I've tried to do it this year, it didn't work out. But there were still some things in the can, things that were in the works that fit in that 70s theme that we went ahead and did, and just so happened they came out this month in December or 70s December. Next year, we're going to spend a lot more time in the classic era. I mean, I love these movies. I I love the 30s, the 40s, and I really love the 50s. Well, you know, I really love the 30s, too, and the 40s. Man, I even like the 60s. And, you know, then we start playing in that gray area. You know, the Hammer films, the Hammer films from the 70s. Well, Peter Cushing and Chris Farley always have a home here in MKR. And what about the Kaiju movies? Some of those came out in the 70s, even the 80s. Heck, I'd love to talk about Shin Godzilla here. Well, Kaiju movies, as far as I'm concerned, always have a home here, too. Bottom line is, is I don't want people to think that we are getting away 
away from the classic horror because that's what Monster Kid Radio was built on. That is Monster Kid Radio's brand. That's not going away. So I hope you've enjoyed the toe dipping that we've done into the 70s here and the future toe dipping we're going to be doing. And like I said with Scott, we're even going to be talking about the movie Matinee from 1993. I just don't want to let so much time go between the classic era of monster movies like I did this month. So maybe that didn't even need to be said. I just appreciate you guys and y'all listening and supporting the show the way that you do. Okay, that all said about making sure we get more into the classic era. Well, next week we're not. We're going into 1972. a recording scheduled this weekend if my voice continues to get better and i'm well enough to do so i've got a recording scheduled this weekend with larry underwood aka the horror host dr gang green we're going to talk about the 1972 amicus film tales from the crypt like i said peter cushing always has a home here on monster kid radio peter cushing is in this movie it's directed by freddie francis who's a hammer mainstay and next week's episode is the last episode of monster kid radio before christmas And Tales from the Crypt has a small Christmas element that I would love to talk about here on the show. So we're going to do that next week with Larry. So that's coming. And because that is the last episode before Christmas, I would love to hear from you guys and gals. Monster Kids, what are your holiday Christmas traditions? They don't have to be Christmas-centric. I would just love for you to be able to share with the Monster Kid Radio audience what you do to incorporate your monsters and your holiday season. I would love to ask you to call that in. Leave us a voicemail at area code 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Now, that is a Google voicemail, which means it's got a hard three-minute limit. If you have more than three minutes worth of stuff to give us, call back more than once, and I'll edit the things together make it sound smooth. It sounds a lot better in my head than I'm sure it does out loud because of my voice, but I'll make it sound smooth. If you would like, though, you can always put together an actual audio file of your own, an MP3, a wave, or whatever it is that iPhones record natively. You can email that to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or if you are more comfortable just writing an email, well, send me an email with your monster holiday traditions and I'll read it here on the show. I'm curious to hear what people do to incorporate their monsters. I know what I do, and I'll talk about it next week. What do you do? 
Now, our contact information is available on our website. That's monsterkidradio.net. Here you're going to find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There are links to everything that we talk about here on the show, a link to the band behind the music that opens and will close this episode of Monster Kid Radio. We have links to our Facebook page where we have over a 1,000 likes now. Thank you to everybody who's liked us on Facebook. We also have a Facebook group where you can join conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes. We have a Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and along the way get yourself some sweet rewards. Now, it was brought to my attention and he is more than right. Paul McComas pointed out that the special thanks section on our website is out of date. I need to go in and update that. So between this week and next week's episode, that special thanks section on our website will be updated with the current list of patrons who support Monster Kid Radio at the AIP level or higher. I really thought there was a lot more to say here, but I'm drawing a blank, which means I probably ought to wrap up, get this episode out, and call it a night. Brother's got to go to the day job tomorrow, and I need all the rest I can get. So, again, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for subscribing to the show. Thanks for your honest iTunes reviews. If you are a user of iTunes, please consider leaving an honest review for us, or whatever pod directory you use, please consider giving us some honest feedback there, because anything that we can do to get higher up in the rankings, using whatever algorithms, whatever whatever uses the more listeners we can get and the more the merrier i mean those monster kids we got to stick together so until next week remember that all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license of course it doesn't apply to the song bunga bunga that belongs to the band the apes party they're a surf band out of italy and this is their EP called Surfing After Lunch. You can find them at theapesparty.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. Just let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Ciao.